as, as they go, if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you've got a, you know, a paper Bible or if you've got it on your phone or something, open those up too. But a question as we get to our text this morning. If you uh, bundled up and walked out the door following the service and asked the first person that you bumped into on the street, hey, how do you picture God? What do you think they might say? I'd love to hear some ideas. What would they say? How do you picture God? What do you think you would hear? If you're online, you can type it in the chat and John will tell you that you're right. Any ideas? Any thoughts? Far away. Okay, good one. Any other ideas? How do you picture God? The little fat guy that sits in your garden. Okay, I like that. Any others? Bigger than we think. Okay. Well, Time Magazine did a, a similar survey a little while ago, and they got, of course, a bunch of different answers along a whole giant spectrum. But one of the responses they, they published was this. Someone said, God is a lot like he was explained to us as children. He's an older man who is just and, and who has to get angry at us. I know this isn't the true picture, but right now it's the only one I've got. Now, uh, let's say for my generation and those that have come before me, uh, those of us who at least grew up with some sort of an influence or, or uh, the ideas of Christianity and church, that answer is probably pretty common. There's God up there, he's judging. If when I do something wrong, he gets upset at me. But for a more recent generation than mine even, where, where the remnants of a Christian worldview has and is fading away, I think the, the understanding of, of who God is would be even less, let's say, charitable than that one, if there's any understanding of who God is at all. Either way, I, I think uh, so many people have such a, a negative understanding of who God is. And they've been influenced by culture, for sure, but they've also been turned off by Christians, those of us who, who maybe mean well but often misrepresent God. Now, our media often portrays believers as well as, as backwards thinking, if thinking at all, uh, portrays believers as anti-science, anti-love, closed-minded jerks. Sometimes, of course, the media is right when they say that, but not always. Uh, of course, uh, we know that, that Christians and the church have been integral parts of building our society, uh, universities, hospitals. These things were all started by Christians. And as, as much as people maybe don't want to admit it, so much of our Western society is, is based on the work of the church and Christians in the past. See, all that is to say that the job of Christians is to reflect Christ to the world around us. We're to, to show people who God is and what he's done. That's, that's our job. That's our mission. And so to, to be human, to be made in the image of God, is to be in some small way markers and pointers towards who God is and what he's done for us. Of course, the ultimate perfect image of what a human is supposed to be like is Jesus. Colossians 1.15 reminds us, Paul says, that, that he is the visible image of of the invisible God. And so if we want to know what God is like, the very best thing we can do is look to Jesus. 
Well, we're in the middle of John chapter 3 today, so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Again, these, these verses we're about to read give us a good, close look at the heart of God. And what they show, what they, what they will show us in these verses, what we'll see here is that God is not a, a grumpy, disappointed, punishing, ruthless old man. But instead we see grace, we see kindness, we see loving kindness, God's said love that we talked about when we went through the book of Ruth. We see a God who loves these verses we're about to read, they, they follow Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we looked at last week. And we're not totally sure when Nicodemus leaves the conversation, when he leaves the scene. But, but as I mentioned, we will see him show up again a couple more times in, in John's gospel. So keep your eyes open for good old Nick in the future. In that conversation, Jesus has just said in, in verse 13 that, that he has come down from heaven which leads us into these verses, 14 through 21, that we're going to read today. And they're going to show us, and he's going to talk about who God is, what he's like, and God's plan for humanity. So keep those three things in mind as I read these verses for us. They're going to show us who God is, what he's like, and God's plan for humanity. So John 3, starting at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him and the son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Holy, the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, within those verses, I trust that you recognize at least one. John 3.16 is probably the most well-known, most famous, most memorized verse in all the Bible. So if you're someone who maybe only knows, has only heard one verse in the Bible, chances are it's this one. But if we want to be good Bible readers, we need to uh, take note of the language here, of course. You hear me say this a lot because it is really important, especially the first word of this most famous verse, which is what? For... This is like, therefore, and whenever we read a therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? He's saying, listen, because of this, Jesus is saying, because of what's just happened, God loves the world this way. So we can't rightly read verse 16 or anything that follows. We can't actually take verse 16 by itself without 17 and 18 as well. But we actually can't understand 16 rightly without looking back at 14 and 15. But if John 3.16 is one of the most memorized verses in all the Bible, I suspect that verses 14 and 15 are maybe the exact opposite. They kind of seem a little obscure, maybe. I, I wouldn't have them memorized. I wouldn't have placed them there necessarily myself. But what Jesus is pointing back to is really important. And again, for the, the early listeners, for the Jews of the day, they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about in those verses. 
And we can read about, uh, just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, we can read about that back in Numbers 21. So basically, Jesus is pointing them back to their history, the Jewish history. And what's happened there is Moses has, has come and he's rescued and he's redeemed the people from, from slavery in Egypt and he's led Israel into the wilderness and they've been wandering again and, and once again the people are murmuring against Moses, which is a really nice way of saying they're whining, they're complaining, they're saying to Moses, listen, we were better off in Egypt. You've just brought us out here into the desert to die. And that's not just a rejection of Moses, though it is, but it's a rejection of God himself and God's plan itself. They're actually rejecting God's redeeming, rescuing work, which is really important for us to consider as we read these coming verses. And so as Numbers records for us, when they, they grumble, God's protection over them is lifted and his judgment comes on the camp in the form of, of poisonous snakes coming in and, and people were being bit by these snakes and dying from the poison, dying in their rebellion. And so Moses is instructed to craft a bronze snake and, and put it on a pole and lift it up and so that when the people looked at that snake on the pole, their lives were spared and they were given new life, physical life course, but new life. And so Jesus is saying, listen, just like that, just like God pulled you out of Egypt, God did all he had to do to keep you alive and well and rescue and redeem you, and then you walked away and you, you were judged by him, just like Moses lifted up that snake to bring life back. In the same way, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who look on him, and implied in that is all who believe in him. You couldn't just look at that snake in the wilderness. You actually had to believe that that was the way to be saved. But who all who look at him, who believe that in the work of the Son of Man, will have not just new physical life, but eternal life, Jesus says. Because remember your history. This has been foreshadowed. My coming has been foreshadowed, hinted against for generations and generations and generations. So Jesus is setting us up again to look forward to the cross. So the question we have to ask, of course, is, is why? Why did the snake have to be lifted up? Why did Jesus need to be lifted up? And that answer is we find in verse 16. The answer is because God loved us. As one writer says, the death of Jesus Christ, that he might be lifted up. That, that language is talking about crucifixion, of course, the most, the most horrible, gruesome death that, that the Roman Empire could come up with. So the death of Jesus, this horrible crucifixion of the Son of God, the Son of Man, is a direct result of the love of God for you and me. He says, God's love is chiefly displayed through the death of Christ. Now, for those who have memorized verse 16, and I was told this week that I should actually be preaching from the King James because that's how we've all memorized this verse is in the King James language. So uh, if you remember that, what's, what's the third word in that verse? For God so loved the world. Now, for a, a word that's only two letters long, it carries two really significant definitions that are, that are similar but yet really different as well. See, when I go up to one of my kids and give them a, a great big hug, or my daughter give her a great big hug, I might say, listen, I love you so much. And that's, that's one way we can use the word so, right? It's talking about how much love is being expressed. For God so loved the world. It's an amount. He loved God, the world so much he did this thing. And there's, there's nothing untrue about reading this verse this way. 
But that's not actually how John is using it in verse 316. He's not talking about the amount of God's love. He's not talking about the intensity of God's love. See, another modern translation puts it this way, and the, the Christian Standard Version says, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. See the difference? So turns into in this way. John's not showing us a volume of God's love, of how much God loves us, but John is showing us how God demonstrates his love for us. The, the, the proof of God's love for us isn't that it exists in a massive quantity, which it does, and that's true in the Bible. You can find that lots of places, but rather the proof of God's love is that he's acted on it. Think of it this way. Again, if you're around kids that you love and you ask them, how do you know I love you? They might say, and I I tested this on my kids this week walking home from school. I'm bad because you keep saying it so much. And that's true, but when I kind of pushed the button and probed a little farther, I was like, yeah, okay, I say it a lot, but, but what else? How else do you know? And they'll say something like, well, you show me this way. We did this thing together. You buy me these things. You take me this place or whatever else. See, I can, I can say to my kids, I love you all the time. And they can hear those words all the time, but it's, it's the demonstration of that love that's going to stick. The time we spent, the, the, the something we bought with them. I was reminded this week that, that Jaden still talks about a day that he and I went skiing, just the two of us. I think that was two seasons ago up at Sunshine. And Jana still randomly once in a while will talk about going and getting donuts and hot chocolate at JK Bakery after a shot. She had, she got her vac- vaccination or something and we, we showed up and she's like, Dad, remember when we got those sprinkled donuts? Well, yeah, sprinkled donuts. But God did something way bigger than a half day at sunshine or sprinkled donuts and hot chocolate. He gave his only son. John is, is really deliberate with his words here in verse 16 and of course in 17 as well. God gave his son. God sent his son for us. Those words remind us that, that this was a sacrifice. It cost God something dear, something he cared about. As some uh, have said, I couldn't attribute the quote to anyone in particular, but salvation is free for us, but it's not cheap. The gift of God costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything. D.A. Carson ties verse 16 back to verse 14 and 15 this way. I think it's really helpful for us. He says, as the new birth, remember Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about new birth earlier in chapter 3. As, as the new birth and the acquisition of eternal life have been grounded in the lifting up in the, of the sun, so also that lifting up is the climax of the sun's mission, and it itself is grounded in the love of God. The mission of the sun and its consequences is the theme of this paragraph, but John begins by insisting that the sun's mission was itself the consequence of God's love. He goes on and says, the the Greek construction of these verses emphasizes the intensity of the love. The words, his one and only son, stress the greatness of the gift. The father gave his best, his unique and beloved son. That's how he demonstrated that he loved the world, that God gave this gift to us as he demonstrated his love for us. We can keep walking through this verse and we see that for God so loved 
the world. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, for God so loved the Jews. For God so loved the good ones. For God so loved those who have it all together, those who work really hard, those who are, are striving to love him back. God so loved the ones that loved him. God so loved the lovely and the lovable. He says, God so loved the world. Everyone whether they realize it, whether they accept it, whether they want his love or not, God loves the world. Even though he sees the pain and the brokenness and the rebellion and the sin that we all cause and we all inflict on one another, God loves the world. And so what's remarkable about the love of God is not, again, just how much love he has for, for the whole world, but rather that the world is, is so far from him, so undeserving of his love, and yet he loves the world. In Romans, uh, Paul quotes the Psalms where, and he rightly says that there is no one in the world who deserves God love, God's love. There's no one who has earned God's love. Later he writes in, in Romans 5, 8, that we were, we were all rebels against God, and yet while we were still sinners, God gave us the gift of his Son. See, this most famous verse, this most memorized verse, this most popular verse in the Bible, the one that you see you know, attributed to other people at, on, on signs at sports games sometimes too. John 3.16 is not about our loveliness, that we were so good that God might love us, but it's about God's love. Again, it is really critical to note what the verse doesn't say here. It doesn't say that, that God loves us, present tense. God loves us now that we've been made into his children. But again, it says, for God so loved, past tense, the world. God loved us before we did anything. God's the one who acts here. God's the one who loves first. John would later write in 1 John 4, 9 that, that we can love only because he has first loved us. One commentator concludes that God's righteousness was on display at the cross. His holiness and hatred for sin were seen in the severity of the punishment. When Jesus took upon himself the punishment our sin demanded, he testified to the world that God is absolutely and unquestionably righteous. So let us never doubt the love of God. You were not on the cross. God's own son hung, son hung there. You did not pay that terrible price. Jesus did. Verse 17, John writes, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here again, we, we, we see the mission. We see why Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn the world. That was already the problem. And we'll see more of that coming in, in later verses. See, the problem was right since the, the very first sin in the Garden of, of Eden, humanity has had a sin problem, a brokenness problem. We've always thought that we know best for ourselves. And so what we see when we see Adam and Eve in the garden, we see them step out from under God's protection, out from under God's wise rule over their lives, and they decide they know what's best. And that had consequences. They were expelled from the garden, which, remember, we said was, was the original temple, the place where heaven and earth met, and, and God dwelt with his people. They were expelled from the very presence of God. And because they were no longer in his presence, they were destined to ultimately 
die a physical death. Now, there's, there is no worldview on the planet that suggests this isn't true, that we have a problem, that there's brokenness in the world. It's one of the four main existential questions that we all ask. Where did we come from? What's the problem? How do we fix that problem? And what do we look forward to when we fixed it? But see, even with, with all that we can do these days, with all the, the human wisdom, with all the human ingenuity, we are ultimately all still plagued by this brokenness in our souls. No matter what we chase after, everything seems to leave us empty. And no matter what we do, we can still feel like we're drowning and hopeless, ultimately, not ultimately satisfied by anything in this world. So C.S. Lewis noted once that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, with a problem that, that nothing in this world can solve, he says the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, we can't fix ourselves. We've tried, humanity has tried for centuries and centuries and centuries, and yet we have the same problems cropping up in every society, in every place on the planet. See, the problem is we need someone to come and rescue us. We, we long to be with God. We long for that fulfilled life, that abundant life, the eternal life from verse 15, but we cannot do it ourselves. And that's why God sent his son into the world. There's nothing we can do to, to save ourselves from the consequences of rebellion. That's why God had to send someone unique, Jesus, the one who was God himself, to rescue us so that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Jesus came so that we could be rescued through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him, in the Son, in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. Again, this word believe, John has already used about a dozen times. It's one of the, the, the most common words in John's gospel. So whenever we see it, we need to kind of sit up and pay attention, maybe circle it as we go through the book. But it implies not just a, a mental assent. I believe two plus two is four. That seems to be about right. But it implies a surrender, a, a, a pledging of allegiance and a submission to Jesus. The Bible says because of the brokenness and the, the sin inside of us, we're all guilty, we're all condemned, this verse says. Romans 3.23 says, For uh, not just a few have sinned, but for all have sinned. This is the plight of the world. We have, we've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all chosen our own way. We've all put our trust in, in our ways, in our thinking, in, in our uh, imagination of how we might uh, be fulfilled. But because of Jesus and because of our belief in his work, we're no longer slaves. We're no longer guilty. When we put our faith in Jesus alone to save us, our sin and guilt are washed away and we are declared innocent because Jesus paid the price. Uh, in verse 18 where it says, the one is not condemned, that is present tense. Again, grammar is boring maybe to learn in school, but it is so important. This is a present tense command. It means that Jesus has already taken care of our condemnation. It's done. We aren't currently still stuck in our guilt and shame, waiting for someday in the future when maybe if Jesus is good enough and we're good enough that hopefully it can finally be taken care of. But we are no longer condemned. We're free now in Jesus. As one writer says, it's easy for a Christian to feel the weight of sin and guilt and condemn himself. I don't know if you can identify with that, but I sure can. 
But when we do that, when we feel the weight of sin, uh, confess sin, when we feel the guilt, when we condemn ourselves, we forget the power of the cross. We've already been freed by sin. We've already been freed by its guilt. Sin is no longer our master. We shouldn't wallow in the guilt of our sin. But there's a second half to verse 18. If we believe in him, we have that freedom. But if we don't believe, then we're still guilty. The consequences of our rebellion have not been dealt with. Now, I think we, we all desire justice. You don't have to look too far to see that, that everyone desires justice. When we see brokenness or injustice around us, we demand justice. But we don't maybe always realize that God also demands justice. Matt Carter says this, says, most of us think we're okay because we're decent people. We look around and we compare ourselves with the worst people we can find, and then we feel pretty good about ourselves. But pride and self-sufficiency often get in the way of admitting the real problem and addressing the real need. Every man, woman, and child is a sinner in need of a savior. And God is our creator, and he deserves our trust and honor, but we have disrespected him. Scorning the infinite God is an infinitely serious offense, deserving an infinite punishment. Finally, what's our response to all this? In verse 19, Jesus continues, and he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Remember, that's another massive theme in John, light versus darkness. He says, I've come in the world. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light because their works will be exposed. But whoever does what is true and comes to the light uh, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now for a, a, a common verse, one that we've probably all heard in, in verse 16, one that's kind of hope-filled, God loved the world, great, God loved the world, he sent his son, we can be redeemed, we can be rescued, he can fix this thing. These last few verses, it would be nice kind of if we could not deal with them. Right? They're, they're pretty heavy. Words like judgment and condemnation, they kind of make us squirm a little bit in our seats. They offend us. They offend our 21st century senses. They make us uncomfortable because we don't like dealing with uncomfort, discomfort. They might even make us doubt that God is actually loving. Wait a minute, we just said God is loving, but now he's going to condemn people? We've got to read those verses together. When it talks about condemnation in that passage we just read, when it talks about judgment, whose fault is it? Who's the one that earns, let's say, the condemnation? I do. It's not God's fault. The light has come, but I love the darkness instead. It's not that, that God's gift of Jesus is insufficient. It's not that Jesus didn't do enough to save someone so bad as me. Jesus was perfect. His sacrifice is perfect. And he alone can meet all the needs of those of us who have sinned, all of us who have sinned. The problem is people refuse to turn to him and trust him. It's that instead we trust ourselves instead of Jesus' work. See, the, the simple message of this passage, the simple message of the Bible is one of God's love and mercy. 
about man's sin and need and the rescue that's found through Jesus Christ. I love really how simply Sally Lloyd-Jones captures God's love as demonstrated by Jesus. She wrote uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's one that I think we've read through with Jana a dozen times, at least as many with Jaden too. And she kind of captures the crucifixion scene this way. So you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Well, then you're going to need a crown and a robe. So they gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns. They put a purple robe on him. They pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. And then they whipped him. And they spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life, the king of heaven and earth who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, our king, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city and Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. And they nailed Jesus to that cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, the people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl, like when he stilled the storm and when he fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand it, but it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together to remember all that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let me pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for these words. I pray that uh, maybe especially verse 16, one that can be so familiar that maybe when we come to it in our reading, when we hear it said or spoken, we just sort of gloss over it because we've heard it so many times. I pray that, again this morning, that, that you would have and you would, you would continue to make those words come alive to us. For you loved the world in this way that you gave your one and only son. The best you had, the most you had. You loved us so much that you held nothing back so that we could be with you. We can look to the Son of Man lifted up. We could look to Jesus and his work on the cross and believe in him, believe that it was enough. Jesus, thank you that you came, that you walked this earth, that you, you were much like one of us. You were exactly like one of us as humans. You experienced temptation. You experienced trial. You experienced betrayal and, and this horrific death. And though you could have stopped all of it, you didn't because you loved us so much and you wanted us to be with you. Maybe this is a verse or something you, you've heard before, seen it on a mug or in a poster or on a, at a sports game, but you haven't really grasped what it means that God loved you so much that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter uh, how far away you've walked and how, how 
self-absorbed or self-centered or as much as you've tried to fix yourself, however much you've done that, Jesus' sacrifice is enough. Maybe you haven't really grasped yet that, that uh, it's not what we can do. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus to be loved. But as, as Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were still far off on our own way, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Maybe this morning, for the first time, for the tenth time, for the hundredth time, we need to just pray, Jesus, thank you. I believe in you. I believe in your gift. I want to know you more. I don't have all the answers, but I, I want life. I want uh, freedom. And so let's pray together, Jesus, thank you that you came. Thank you that you died for my sins. Forgive me for the ways I've gone my own way. Draw me back to you. Take my life, it's yours now. Fill me with your spirit so that I can be made new, I can have the new eternal life you talked about. And help me to tell others about you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.